This is a One and All Media podcast. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Bringing people far from God near to God. We believe in one truth that will be delivered in love and compassion. Connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. And we're about to rejoin Pastor Jeff to finish this message from Nehemiah chapter 6, looking at how Nehemiah had to surrender to God's calling on his life and how God provided the things he needed in order to do that. We're going to apply those practices and those principles from the story of Nehemiah to our lives today. And if you need to catch up on this message or maybe you want to re-listen to it, you can find it by searching for Today with Jeff Finds, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Pastor Jeff now. In Nehemiah chapter 8, here we go, pick it up in verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man. See, the body of Christ is one. They're one. They're in. When you're in, man, you're one. You're a machine. You're, you're a force ordained and anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. They're in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all could hear. Then he read from it in the open square from morning until midday, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. My goodness. After it had been built, Nehemiah brings the law of God. He reads it somewhere probably around six to eight hours, and they stand the whole time and they listen. My goodness, you can't even sit for 40 minutes without going to the bathroom while I'm preaching. Nehemiah 8, they stand, they listen. And the Bible says they blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, here's what's interesting. Now, stay with me here. There's a turn about to happen because they're joyful. Why wouldn't they be joyful? They've built the city of God and the city of man. They prepared the way for the Messiah that will come hundreds on hundreds of years. God had kept all his promises, all his provisions, all his precepts. And then the people say to God, but we know what our fathers did. They acted proudly, verse 16. They hardened their necks. They did not seek or heed your commandments. They refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders. So they disobeyed you. They didn't honor the temple. They didn't worship and praise your name. They did not obey your law. They become hard-hearted And they would not surrender their lives to God. And they acted proudly and did not heed your commands. He keeps going, but sinned against your judgment, which if a man does, he shall live by them. What does that mean? It means that if you insist on living your life your own way, God will allow you to suffer the ramifications of your decisions. He's not going to come in and rescue you when you're violating the law of God every day of your life. That's not the way God works. Because then you'd never learn the lesson. Now look what happens. Verse 33, they say, God, you're just in everything that's befallen us. What, what we have, we deserve. We've done wicked things. We've done bad things, bad things. Our priests 
nor our fathers have kept your law. My goodness, even the pastors didn't keep the law, nor heeded your commandments or your testimonies, which you testified against them. They have not served you in your kingdom or in many good things you gave them or in large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked ways. In other words, God, you gave us so much and we just abandoned it. You know why? Because intrinsic to the human heart is an anger and contempt toward God that we're not the owners and you're gonna fight it all your life. But the people of Nehemiah's day, they wanted growth, they wanted prosperity and they wanted peace of mind. They wanted internal joy. And so they made a commitment to God there was an unconditional surrender. And that surrender included three things. Now, let me show you. We're going we're gonna to head around third here. All of my life, I've asked the same question. Is there any kind of external demonstration of the inward transformation that Christ gives you? Is there anything I should expect to see in myself if Christ has truly changed me and I've surrendered my life to him? Or can I just kind of say it and it talks a good game, but in reality, I'm like everybody else. I'm like so many others. I mean, yeah, I'm Jesus pastor. Yeah, man, we're tight. But he would look at me and say, I don't even know where you're coming from, man. This Old Testament narrative answers that for me. So they say, God, here were your servants today, verse 36, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings. In other words, God, all this stuff that was meant for us, you're redirecting it somewhere else because we've dishonored you. And they have dominion over us at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. So they began to weep, and then they say something to God in verse 38. And because of this, we make a covenant and write it down. God, we're not going to be like our ancestors. We're not going to be like the tens of thousands of churches before us. Our leaders and our Levites and our priests will seal the covenant. Now, you got to understand, it's dangerous to make a covenant with God. Because when you make a covenant in the Old Testament, you kill a bunch of animals and you split them in half and you walk between the pieces. And the reason you do that is you're saying to God, if we violate our sense of the covenant, may what happened to these birds and these animals happen to us. You make a covenant with God, God takes it pretty seriously. Okay? So they say, God, we want to make a covenant. And they said that covenant will include three things. And I want to go through these quickly, and then I'm going to mention the application. There are three things they did. God, number one, we're going to resist all outside corruption from now on. The Bible actually says we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. What they're basically saying is they understand that every time they give their daughters to foreign lands, new foreign idols come in. So they're saying false gods usually demand that we honor and praise and worship another God other than you. So God, we don't trust ourselves anymore. We are going to deliberately, deliberately make the decision to avoid any influence of foreign gods or idols. It's that simple. We're going to have a total surrender to you, God, a total surrender, total allegiance. We're going to set ourselves apart in order that we can remain holy. Number two, they said, God, we're going to honor the day of the Lord. Verse 31, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. What are they saying? They're saying, God, the day of the Lord is just that, the day of the Lord, and we violated it, and we know we have. We are compelled to honor it, but it has become a non-negotiable, a negotiable rather in our lives. And they looked back at their forefathers and they saw a pattern of weakness. They realized that every time their forefathers started abandoning the day of the Lord, that 
there was a neglect of the house of the Lord, which led to arrogance, which led to entitlement, which led to an overall lack of gratitude. And then suddenly society began to self-destruct. They said, we're not going to do that anymore. Our priority is going to be to honor the day of the Lord. No more God, they say. Our hearts have returned to the house of the Lord and the day of the Lord. What's the third thing they did? And it's the thing they spent the longest time talking about. They yield the first fruits of their lives to the work of God. Verse 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit trees year by year to the house of the Lord to bring the firstborn and our firstborn of the herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest and to the ministers in the house of the Lord to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now watch this carefully. The people are all pumped up because they've been listening to the law of God. They've built the city of God and the city of man. And they realize how gracious God's been to them and how, how patient he's been with their ancestors. And all of a sudden they figure out, okay, we want to give an external demonstration that we've had an inward transformation. So what do they do? They say, no more are we going to allow outside things to contaminate our soul. No more are we going to violate the day of the Lord. And no more are we going to withhold the very best of who we are from God. Now, I know what you're thinking. And I want to say to you, stop it. Stop being so stinking legalistic. Because some of you out there say, wait a minute, Jeff, we don't have the temple of God anymore. And I'm going to say, hold on, get out of the weeds, get up here. What is the primary purpose of the narrative? What's the fulfillment of the narrative? The temple in the Old Testament, what was it? It was the original care center. It's where people could come for help. Those far from God could come near to God. It enabled the people to do the work of God. That there would be those who would lead in prayer and study and exhortation and teaching and instruction. They would represent the people before God in repentance and atonement. They would provide for the less fortunate. They would defend the impoverished who could not defend themselves. They would hold each other and the community accountable. They would call people far from God to come near. And when the temple was no longer a place of emphasis, society always self-destructs. The church is no longer the center of our communities. We've kicked God out of the schools, the Bible out of the schools. We can't talk about our faith in the public arena. When you silence the voice of God, when you neglect the voice of God, people stop praising and worshiping God, and they're always going to praise and worship something. And that is going to be monetary things. And that will kill the soul. They, the people in the Old Testament, withheld their very best from what mattered the most. So the priests stopped doing the work of ministry and instead took jobs on the farms and in the fields. And since the house of God and the purposes of God were neglected, no one was around to adjudicate on behalf of the people. So there was social injustice. When the house of God is abandoned... Society self-destructs. There's nobody to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. So in Nehemiah 7 through 10, what do the people do? And here's the answer. This is the point of the message. How do you know that you have surrendered to God? Number one, you do your very best to resist outside corruption. Remember Susanna Wesley's definition of sin. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. I'm starting to really get what this means. 
Any activity in your life that harms or obscures your sense of God, even though it might not be immoral, must be discarded. I'm starting to wake up to these truths in my own life. I have iPhone. I have iPad. God wants me to have I pray. I pray. Rather than spend all my time on Facebook, he wants my face in the book. And the things that entertain me may not be immoral, but they impair the tenderness of my conscience. They are desensitizing you, folks. They're impairing the tenderness of your conscience. The shows that you watch may not be immoral, but they glamorize an illegitimate lifestyle, and you're addicted to it. I'm addicted to it. Movies that idealize immoral living don't offend you anymore. You know why? You're not thinking of God. And nobody's going to take away your rights to read and watch what you want to read and write. All you want to talk about is your rights. And you say, Pastor Jeff, are you talking about censorship? No, I'm talking about discipline. Discipline. And if you get angry when somebody challenges you, all you're doing is affirming the word Jesus spoke. Paul said in Colossians, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Stop giving yourself to things that pull you away from God. Stop and surrender your soul. You may not be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. But what's in here? What's in here? We're not willing to give up anything that we think we can't live without. And the Bible tries to tell you the only thing you can't live without is Jesus. I promise you, if the TV and movie theaters, if they all went missing, you'd still survive. Number one, I will do my very best to resist outside corruption. I won't be perfect, but I'm going to try. Two, I will honor the day of the Lord. Remember the article we read on Father's Day? Why the next generation is leaving the church and God. He says, many youth have had no or very little exposure to adult role models who know what they believe, why they believe it, and are committed to consistently living it out. I'm going to go back and tell the same illustration I did. I was the captain of my high school basketball team, and my coach decided he was going to start having practice on Sundays. Now, we're talking about early 80s here. My father found out about it. And my father took me down to coach's office and said, coach, you can have my son every hour of every day, every hour of every day. I will never complain about how often he's at practice or in the gym. In fact, I want to thank you. My son respects you. You've been a great influence. I want to thank you for that. But I hear now that you're thinking about having practice on Sundays. And my dad said, I'm okay with that too, as long as it starts after 1.30. It's because we do, my family does something else on Sunday morning. We honor the day of the Lord. And so if you want my son at practice, he'll be there as long as you start it after 1.30. And dad said, sometimes we have a little revival at our church and people get all saved and happy and we, he might be a little late, but he ain't coming early. <laughs> and my coach, my coach looked at my father and I think my coach gained new respect for my dad. And so practice started at two o'clock on Sunday afternoons. How sacred, let me ask, dads, how sacred do your children believe this day is? And stop being legalistic. Well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Do you know what that question says to me? The the, the thing you should be saying, the thing I would say back to you is, okay, don't you want to be there? 
Where's your heart to be with God's people in corporate worship? That's what the church means. The called out ones. We come together. They stood together as one. I'll watch it home on the TV. <laughs> really? That's for when you're out of town. Why don't we just have drive up church? Just drive up at your own convenience. And you know, you put the old thing on like the old drive-in window and there's the sound and we'll feed you some beer and hot dogs and you can go on your way. And some of you are saying, yeah, why don't we do that? How important is the day of the Lord to you? I know you travel. I'm not talking, I know that. I'm talking about how important is it for you to be here and do your kids know or do your kids know, hey, if anything else comes up, we're not going there. What do you think they're gonna do when they get older? What do you think they're going to do when they get older? When my dad took me down there and talked to the coach like that, do you know what that did for me? That told me, man, this is important. Nothing violates this, not even my basketball team. And third, I will bring the first fruits into the storehouse. To bring the first fruits of our dough and the offerings of the fruit of all the kinds of trees of new wine and oil, the storerooms of the house of God, to not neglect the house of God. Do you notice something about, what's the commonality in this list is that they're all monetary. Now let's go back to Mark. Because this is usually where they want to shoot and kill the servant. You, you, do, you, do you see what's happening? I'm coming to you right now and I'm saying to you, the owner of all things requires your first fruits to do the work of ministry. Why is it that I would bring my first fruits? Because we understand the relationship between the church and God's work in the world. Jesus said in Matthew 16, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What's the church? What's the church? Is it a building? No. It's the ecclesia. That's the word. It means the called out ones. It's a gathering of the redeemed. So that means the first covenant in the Old Testament was associated with building the temple of God for the work of ministry. But the second covenant is to build the body of Christ, the people of God, so that our first fruits don't go to a building. Our first fruits go to building up the body. People far from God coming near to God to build a city of God and the city of man. Stop giving me this stuff about that's an Old Testament law. It doesn't matter in the New Testament. What I'm telling you is where's your heart? Where's your heart? What matters to you? What gets the very best of you? That's what this is about. It really comes down to one question, folks. One question and one question only. Am I winning the battle against materialism and living for the city of God? That's the answer. It's yes or no. And if you were in a court of law and I was a lawyer and I asked you that question and you tried to say yes, but I'd say yes or no. Yes or no. Are you winning the battle against materialism and living for the city of God? There's a warning. Be careful that you're not on the outskirts thinking you're in the inside. There's a weeping. Repent for the way that we've lived. And third, worship. And you know what worship means by, you know what the word means? It means what you give ultimate worth to. Did you know that? So the worship of God means you give God and his work in the world ultimate worth in your life. Is that true? For most of us, no. Repent. Weep. Acknowledge that you've not shown gratitude to God the way you wanted to. Acknowledge that God is an afterthought. Acknowledge right now that you're, you're dying for this sermon to end so the conviction will stop. Just acknowledge, it's okay. If I were in your place, I'd probably be doing the same thing. The only way we're going to be able to do this, folks, 
this great vision that God has given us is 100% of you involved. We cannot do this. We cannot do this without the 66% who are presently in our church who are not engaged. We can't do this. We need you engaged. To some degree, we need you engaged. You know, my friend, uh, I talk about this often, but it, it's inspiring, and I'll, I'll end with this. My friend, Tony Bennett, who coaches the Virginia Cavaliers, good friend of mine, and we met each other in New Zealand. It's an interesting story. I'm not gonna tell you the whole thing, but he had been playing for the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, he uh, had a knee injury his fourth year. He went to Australia and New Zealand. They paid him 40 grand to play three games uh, because it was in the off season and he was between contracts, so he could. And then the Cleveland Cavaliers were offering him $3.3 million in 1998, which was a lot of money then, it's a lot of money now, $3.3 million to come and be their point guard. I met Tony in New Zealand, and I don't know what came over me other than the Spirit of God. And I said to Tony, I said, Tony, why don't you, why don't you give up that contract and stay in New Zealand and help us plant this new church to help people far from God come near? And I, you know, I drew the vision that I had. We didn't have any people yet. Didn't have furniture in the house. And I drew it on the back of a pizza hut, pizza box. The vision that we had, what wanted to happen. Kind of what I did for you one day. Different vision, but same idea. I thought nothing much would happen. I and mean, we were talking about Tony Bennett here, you know, who, who now is in the top five coaches in the land. One of the highest paid as well. Went to Virginia and turned that team around from a bottom of the conference team to winning at three out of the last five years. So... One day I was down in my garage praying through things and how we're going to accomplish this task in New Zealand, very post-Christian country, very difficult place. You remember those old brother fax machines? So I'm sitting there in my garage and I get a fax on one of those old brother fax machines. And it's a photo in black and white that Tony had sent me from Madison, Wisconsin. And Tony Bennett was on the top of uh, a pile of Charlotte Hornets who had just beaten the Boston Celtics in game seven of the NBA playoffs to advance for the first time to round two. He sent me that photo and there's a caption that read this, what I did here was but for a moment, what I'll do with you will last for eternity. And he gave up $3.3 million contract to come and for three years helped us and many far from God came near because he had a platform that I never had. And after the three years, I thanked Tony. I asked him to commit three years. He gave us three years. And do you think God has blessed him now? Oh, my goodness. But Tony's still Tony. I'm telling you that there's something fantastic in your life waiting when you fully surrender to God. And if our church will do this 100%, we will change the world. And if you're on the outside looking in, there'll be some kind of a disheartening because you'll know it was God and you had a chance to be involved. Come on. That's how you know you've surrendered. You try your best not to be contaminated from the outside. You honor the Lord's day, man. It becomes a priority to you. It's not about the legalism of the Sabbath. It's about the principle of taking a day every week of your life and saying, I'm going to go and praise and honor God with the saints of God. That's what it's about. And third, you're going to bring your very best, not leftovers. The first fruits of your life come to God and what he's doing in his world. 
Father, I thank you and praise you for the people and for the call on their lives. And I pray right now in Christ's name, you would overwhelm us with your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, and your conviction that our eyes would be open to the lives that we're living. I know this cannot happen other through a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit on this place. And so I pray for that move of God to come. And I pray for it to be powerful. And I pray we would be changed by it. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.